this morning. We're jumping into 1 Corinthians chapter 2 today. So you can turn there in your Bible. Uh, we're going to be doing a series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, started a couple of weeks ago. We'll uh, take a little break at Christmas time, but really all the way up through Easter, we're going to be just saturating ourselves in the, uh, this letter to the church in Corinth. It was a city, as we've talked about over the past couple of weeks, that it was just ripe with uh, opportunities for sin and excess. Uh, anything that you wanted to pursue, uh, you could find there. And it's in the midst of this context that the gospel comes in and, and fills this hole in the lives of, of people who are desperately seeking something and they didn't realize what they were seeking was God. And, uh, and, and so when Paul comes with this message of the gospel, there's many who respond with joy. Um, and now he's writing to them a little bit down the road. He's moved on to another city, but he's heard about some, some divisions and some struggles and some difficulties they're having. And he's writing a letter back to both encourage and challenge them uh, to live worthy of the calling that Jesus has called them to. And so we're just beginning to dig into that. Um, and what I want to look at this morning, I, I want to ask you, uh, hey, who is it that you, uh, that, that you really feel impressed by? Uh, when you think about who are, your, who are your, uh, your heroes, who are the people that you look up to, who are the people that you admire, uh, who are the people that if they jump on the radio and tell you to buy a car from a certain dealership, you'd be like, yeah, I would go buy it from there. Or if, uh, if they tell you that this is the best indoor griddle that money can buy and they're an ex-boxing uh, champion, that you might say, yeah, I, I, I think their word is good for that, right? Like, who are the people that, um, that are, are thought leaders for you? It might be somebody you follow on Instagram or it might be somebody that you, uh, maybe it's a ministry, maybe it's a pastor that you watch their sermons online. But, but all of us, we, we, uh, it's, it's human nature, right, that we look to other people and we, um, and we want to be like them, and we want to be close to them. And if we get a chance to meet them, sometimes we get starstruck because we, we don't know what to say now that they're right in front of us, right? Um, and this is not a unique phenomenon to our culture. This was the same way in Corinth at this time and throughout history that there's been this sort of uh, this drive of personality. And it was part of the problem that they were having that Keith talked about last week when he preached um, that, that there was people in the church that said, hey, you know, I'm really a, a Paul guy. I'm, I'm in with Paul. And other people say, nah, Apollos is my guy. And, and they would have their, uh, their different preferences. Um, and it was, it was causing divisions in the church. It was causing disunity among them. And so, uh, so Paul is, is writing to them in this passage uh, to remind them uh, and to remind us that this sort of desire to, uh, to draw near to and prefer and to emulate and to idolize people is, is really part of the source of our dysfunction, and it's part of the source of disunity, and it's, a, it's, it's the source of our drift away from the truth of the gospel. And so he's writing to try and correct that and to let them know that in order to live in peace, joy, and fulfillment, what they really need is the wisdom of God. Uh, it's not the stamp of approval from another human being. It's the wisdom of God that will be a blessing to them and that will get them back into the lives that, that God desired for them. And so uh, let's just jump right in. We're going to look, at, um, we're gonna look at, at this in three parts today. Uh, we're going to look at um, how God's wisdom is centered in the gospel. God's wisdom is centered in the gospel. We're going to look at where we don't find the wisdom. And then we're going to look at where we do find that wisdom. So we'll spend a good bit on that first part. God's wisdom is centered in the gospel, but then we'll look at where we, where we look for it and we don't find it and we'll, where we can ultimately look to find it. So that's where we're going this morning. Um, let me pray for us and then we'll just jump right into 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Father God, uh, we just come before you in humility this morning. Um, as we just sang in that song, we're asking you to speak to us. Lord, we, we expect when we open up the Bible, which is, which is your living word, that 
It will speak into our lives. We expect that when we open up your word and study it, that, that we'll, understanding, we'll, we'll learn something more about your heart and your desire and your will and your wisdom. And so we come eager to learn. Uh, we come with open hearts. We come with a desire uh, to be more like you. And um, so, God, I, I, I know that you honor that and that you, you want to be known. And so uh, I just pray that you would, uh, as we read this, it would be like scales falling from our eyes this morning, that we would just see with clarity what it is uh, that you're trying to teach us and show us in this passage. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with this. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but rather in the power of God. A significant cause of divisions uh, was that the Corinthians were impressed by the wisdom of, of men with eloquent speech and, and, and these logical, uh, reasoned arguments, which were the, the thing that people were drawn to in that day. And uh, if I can pause for a minute, I say that there's a little bit of me that kind of misses that. <laughs> I reminisce that. I feel like we're not in a culture that values eloquent and well-crafted words of wisdom and, and insightful and nuanced arguments. Uh, we're in a sledgehammer society these days, right? Where people are just going to take their idea and they're going to beat it over your head and there's, there's no subtlety and there's no consensus building. It's just, uh, it's just the battle of the strongest wills. And, and so in some ways I kind of lament and miss the days when, when, uh, when nuance and eloquence were valued. But each one has its own trap and its own desire. So we don't, we don't benefit from wishing we lived in a different era, right? We've got to embrace the era that God has placed us in. He knew what he was doing when he put us here at this time. So they were basing their faith on the messenger rather than the message. And, and, and we see this happen a lot, do we not? It's, it's sad in our society and culture. It's, it's hard to go a couple weeks without hearing about another uh, very large church where the pastor falls from grace in one way or another and, uh, and, and the, the church is scattered and people are discouraged and people walk away from, from the faith because what they were drawn to was not ultimately Jesus, but it was to a personality. It was to a person uh, more so than it was the person that, that they were meant to be drawn to, the, the, the subject of it. Um, I, I've shared this story before. Uh, Trina and I were traveling. At one point, we'd heard some things about this church. We wanted to check it out. We'd heard some really good things. And so we went and checked it. And, man, their facility was amazing. Uh, when we went in, they had this incredible, like, coffee bar. Like, I felt like I had just walked into Starbucks. But they were charging for their coffee, and our coffee's free. So I just want you to know, you guys have got a good deal here. And it's good coffee. Um, because that's a, a core value of this church, right? But, um, but man, they had this amazing, you know, cafe setup area, and uh, their children's program looked amazing. I couldn't get back there because they had security and stuff. So, but it looked really, it looked really cool. And then we walked into the sanctuary, and they had this like rustic, like faux barn, like with boards built with these like bulbs hanging down. I mean, it looked amazing. Their band was on point. Everything was great. Um, and then the pastor got up to preach the message, and um, and what it turned out to be was about 40 minutes of, of just earthly wisdom, of just worldly wisdom about when you're in a conflict situation, how to resolve conflict. And, 
and he sprinkled in a few verses that kind of like somewhat fit with where he was going. But really what we walked out with was his five or six points on how to avoid conflict and how to manage things well. And, and to top it off, they finished with a, a pop song, uh, and the chorus of it was, I will try to fix you, right? And uh, I like that song a lot, but not in the context of church. <laughs> Um, ironically, it was exactly what the message was. And so I walked out really discouraged because I was like, man, here's this, this they've got all the pieces that are in place. They've got all the elements. They're drawing people, but they're not pointing people ultimately to Jesus. And if they're not, what's the worth, right? What's the, what's, what's the value in that? And so we invite you to hold us accountable in this church. Uh, every, every message that's preached, regardless of who's up here preaching it, should always point you back to Jesus, and, and it should be more about the message than the messenger. And if we fail at that, we invite you to, <laughs> to let us know, because that's what church is meant to be. The interesting thing here is that Paul was not surprised that, that they had drifted away. He doesn't write to him, and he's like, man, I am so shocked that this is happening. In fact, what he says is, he says, hey, I made the choice when I came into town I, I discerned spiritually that this was going to be a temptation for you, so I made the choice. He says, I decided when I came to you to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it wasn't that Paul just wasn't a very eloquent speaker. He had just come from Athens and he had debated with the great thinkers of the age and he was winning people to Christ. And everywhere he went, he talked with the, the smartest and the most logical and the most well-read and the most educated people. And he was convincing them that Jesus is the Christ. And so Paul had the capacity, the ability to speak with eloquence and great logic. If you don't think that, read the book of Romans and you'll see, right? He's, he's capable of deep lines of, of logic and reason. But what he said is, I, I chose when I came to you not to speak in lofty ways, but to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, why did he do that? Why did he make that choice? Well, for one thing, we get a hint of it in 1 Corinthians 1, as Keith preached last week in verse 17. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He said... Uh, he said, if, if I come and I speak in a really impressive way and I'm, I'm, really, uh, I'm really engaging and I'm really charismatic and you feel drawn to me, you might miss the fact that, the, that, that Jesus is the one who deserves all the glory. That it's about him. It's not about me. It's not about the messenger. And, 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 when, and when a better messenger comes along, you might abandon the message I brought you for a different message because somebody's a better speaker. But it's not about who's a better speaker. It's about the message that's being delivered. So what he's ultimately saying here, as I said, the first point, God's wisdom is centered in the gospel. He doesn't say to them, hey, you have bad behavior, but I need you to change your behavior. What he says to them is, is, is you're missing the mark, and I'm here to remind you that when I came, I preached Christ crucified. The, the main issue is that you're missing the gospel. You're drifting away from the gospel in your behavior, and, and so I'm here to remind you of what that is. Now, there's lots of passages that talk about Jesus and his power, uh, and, and there's, there's passages that talk about his, his preeminence and his glory and his majesty and his resurrection and his ruling and reigning and his, and his coming again in power. But Paul didn't talk about any of those things to them. Because he knew what you guys need right now is not a pep rally. You don't need a pep talk. What you need is a message of humility. You need to be reminded that the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, is a, is a message of humility. 
And so let's look at, let's think about for a few moments here, what does it mean to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified? When we think about the crucifixion, man, there's so many things, right? First, Jesus is the creator of the universe, and yet he allowed his creation to reject him and to crucify him. It points to not only his humility, but also his his meekness, because Jesus at every moment had the power to, to bail out, to call down angels from heaven, to get down off the cross. He could have chosen to use his power in that way, and yet he didn't. And so that speaks to the people in the, in the, in the community of Corinth and, and here in our church, right? What are you doing with your power? Are you tempted to abuse your power? Because Jesus Christ crucified is a reminder that ultimate power is shown in meekness and in humility, the ultimate test of power is not how you use and flex your power. It's about how you, how you choose to, at times, not act upon your power. To, to with, withgo your rights, right? It speaks to our pride. Nobody can say that about me. Don't they know who I am? And Jesus said, if anybody had the right to say, don't they know who I am? It was Jesus, right? And yet in humility, he didn't assert the authority that he rightfully had because he, he was called to something greater. In Jesus' crucifixion, he was falsely accused, he was beaten, he was reviled and mocked, and yet he prayed for the forgiveness of his persecutors. He loved even his enemies, which all of us were in our unforgiven state. We're his enemies. And so, so Jesus Christ crucified reminds us that if Jesus on the cross died, and asked God to forgive me because my sin placed him there, then who am I to hold a grudge against my brother or sister in the church? Who has maybe harmed me in a, in a tangible way, but in a much lesser way than the debt that I've been forgiven of of Christ. And the crucifixion of Jesus reminds us. Uh, Jesus crucified reminds us that he gave his very life for you and me. So what does that say about Generosity. If Jesus was not willing to withhold even his own life from us, and we know in the church in Corinth there were some that were showing up early on Lord's Supper night because they were going to get drunk on the wine and eat all the food before anybody else got there. <laughs> and he's like, the Lord you serve is a generous God. Jesus gave his very life in generosity to you, so how could you withhold from your brothers and sisters? The crucifixion of Jesus reminds us that he was sinless and perfect, and yet his path led him to suffering on the cross. So that speaks to, to the people that were saying, hey, why are bad things happening to me? Why is it the other people in the church and other people around me, they seem to be, they seem to be moving up the ladder, they seem to be more successful, they seem to have all these things, and, and I don't have the things that I want. Why is it that when I'm obedient to God, my life gets harder? The crucifixion of Jesus reminds us that the path of obedience doesn't always lead upward. Sometimes it leads downward. Sometimes it leads into suffering. And if Jesus suffered, then, then for us, then, then we can suffer for him. It reminds us that he was the only perfect sacrifice, which means that our good works aren't enough to save us. If we think that we're building a record of righteous deeds that, that God will accept, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? So, so, so his sacrifice as the perfect spotless lamb reminds us that it's not dependent on our own good works, but it's dependent on the work of Jesus Christ perfected on the cross. And that frees us to be obedient without trying to earn his love. In fact, Jesus showed his love 
through obedience when he said, Not my will, Father, but yours be done. In the garden, Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm in anguish here. I, I, my, my desire is not to go and suffer and be crucified and, and experience separation from you, Father, but nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So if he was willing to do that for us, if he was willing to express love through obedience, shouldn't we also be willing to be obedient as an expression of our love? And there was a lot of disobedience going on in the church in Corinth. And if we're honest, there's a lot of disobedience in our life. But when we see it in the perspective of like, hey, when I'm disobedient to God, it's a failure to express love to him that he is worthy of, that he is deserving of, then it's a reminder that our obedience has meaning, it has purpose. The crucifixion of Jesus shows us that he chose to give his life. No one took it from him. He wasn't a victim. And so when we're tempted to embrace a victim mentality, because of our upbringing or our life circumstances or things that have happened to us, it's a reminder that, uh, that Jesus chose the path of humility and ultimately death and suffering for our benefit. And so whatever path has been laid out for us, we can walk it without feeling victimized. We can choose to walk after Christ. We see in the crucifixion of Jesus that the rulers of this age were the ones who crucified him. Essentially, Paul's saying, hey, you know those people that you want to impress? They're the very ones that put Jesus on the cross. So why is it that you're so desperate to be in their good graces, to be elevated in their eyes, to move up in their social circles? Finally, for, for me, there's so much more, right? But the last one I'll point out, the crucifixion of Jesus reminds us that he died with nothing. They cast lots for his garment, the, the one thing that he had in the earth that, that anybody even desired. He left no inheritance. He left no land. He left no fortune. He was never married. He had no children. He only lived 33 years on this earth. And it was the most significant life that was ever lived. And so it speaks to us when we're tempted to say, well, man, if I don't have this, I can't be satisfied. Man, if I never get married, I'll never be satisfied. If I never have kids, I'll never be satisfied. If I never get X amount of dollars in my retirement savings account, I'll never be satisfied. If I never get a, get a promotion at work, if I don't get ahead, if I don't outdo that person that I went to high school with and their life looks better than mine and until I get better than them, I, right? None of that stuff matters. Those things aren't, they're, they're, some of those things are good things. They're, they're, they're gifts of God, but when we elevate them to ultimate things, when we worship them, and think about worship, right? If, if we talk about it, if we think about it all the time, if we pursue it with our time and our, and our money uh, and, our, and our efforts, uh, if, if we don't get it, our life is over and devastated. If, if that describes something in your life, that thing has become your God. <laughs> right? That, that's what worship looks like. And the crucifixion reminds us that none of those lesser things are worthy of our worship because Jesus didn't have any of them, and yet he was full and complete. He lived a perfect life. He lived the most meaningful and significant life that was ever lived. So that thing that you think you need, you don't need. It might be a good gift that God will give to you, but you don't have to have it, and it changes our perspective. Every struggle in our life comes down to a gospel issue. So when we learn to apply the gospel, we begin to move towards real healing, not just a temporary Band-Aid. Have you guys ever looked, um, I've, I've, I've done this a couple times, have you ever looked in, for the passage in the Bible that says, husbands, you must make sure that you have a weekly date night with your wife, and it needs to be marked out on the calendar, and you must never violate, right? Have anybody, I've looked for that, but I haven't found it, and yet 
most of the pastors I know have preached that in sermons, right? Like, you must do this to have a good marriage. You want to have a good marriage? Here's what you do. You have a weekly date night. You spend, right? But ultimately what that is, it's a symptom. It's not, it's not the cause. If you're, if you're struggling in your marriage, the problem isn't that you forgot to, to make your standing uh, reservation at Applebee's this week, right? <laughs> that's, that's not what the problem is. The problem is a gospel issue. Uh, the Bible says that a marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel, that in the same way that the son submitted to the father and willingly chose to come and, and, to, and to be obedient and to, and to serve and, and to glorify the father, it says that that's a small picture of, of what a wife's role in a relationship with her husband is meant to be. It's, it's, a, it's an imperfect picture of that, and, and that a husband is supposed to love his wife the way that Christ loved the church. And he's, and he's called to give his very life for her. And he's called to pour himself out for her. And so uh, when you connect the gospel into your marriage and you operate out of that, then that might, me, that might lead you to make a reservation at Applebee's, right? Because <laughs> you want to spend time with your wife because that's the way you serve. Or you might upgrade. I, I was told after the first service that it should be Ruth's Chris, not Applebee's. But that leads to a whole thing where then you got to get a second job, and then you're pulled further away, right? So you're trading off about eight hours of labor for two hours of work, right? So it's all relative. The point is, it's not, um, it's not a bunch of steps that you need to do. It's a mindset that you need to adopt. And so, so when, when, when you're experiencing struggle, and, and this is not just in, in husband and wife relationships. Uh, we're called, parents are called to, uh, to love their children and not to provoke them to wrath. And, and you're called to essentially give them a picture of what God's love looks like, right? The Father's love. Uh, children, you're supposed to honor your parents, right? <laughs> and, re and respect them because of the position, because in some ways that's a reflection of, of, of the understanding of God's position of authority. And so, so we always have to push the gospel into into, into our life. And so, so I would ask you this, where is it that you're struggling with in life right now? Is it, is it related to unforgiveness, bitterness, disappointment, a lack of joy, some sort of unrepentant sin? Is it lust? Is it envy? Is it greed? Is it broken relationships? My question for you this morning is, do you understand how the gospel connects to that issue? That area of brokenness in your life, that area of struggle, do you understand how the gospel gives you a picture of how it's meant to be? And if you don't, I would encourage you this morning, what you need to do is, is pray that God would give you the wisdom to see that and understand that because that will be the step towards lasting healing, towards lasting change. Not just a change of behavior, but a change of mind, right? Show me how... God, show me how this is a failure to understand and apply the gospel to my life. And so he goes on in the passage to talk about uh, there's a place not to look for this and there's a place to look for this kind of wisdom. The place that we can't find this wisdom is in the world. He says in verse 6, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So he says, hey, I'm not saying that, that life is simple, that there's not a greater level of wisdom. There is a greater level of wisdom. You're just not at a place where you're mature enough to receive it in this moment because you're still thinking in worldly standards. So he's saying, not saying like, hey, it's, it's just, you know, let's dumb it down. This isn't gospel for dummies, right? There's, there's, there's depth and there's layers. But these things are revealed spiritually, right? So yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, 
they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It was the wise rulers of that age who came together, the, the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders really couldn't agree on anything, but the one thing they did agree on is that Jesus should be taken outside of the city and crucified. And he's saying, hey, if you're looking for wisdom, don't look to those guys, because look where their wisdom led them. In that, in that quote there, there's a, there's, a, there's a loose reference there to Isaiah 64, in which uh, God's people are being persecuted and, they're, and they're, they've been taken captive. And so Isaiah's writing in Isaiah 64, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and, and the nations might tremble in your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. He's saying, God, I want you to show up right now. Our enemies have won. We are defeated. But in an instant, you could just appear. And have any of you guys prayed this? Uh, right? have, you ever, have you ever had these moments where you're like, man, you know what needs to happen right now? God needs to just come down and set things right. He needs to take over. And, 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 and there's something good about our hearts desiring for that. But look what he goes on to say. He says in verse 4, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, I has seen a God besides you which Paul's pointing to this passage, right? And look what it goes on to say. Who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you and your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. He's reminded them by, by quoting this passage, like, hey, if you think you're, you're righteous and you're wise and you're holy, you're not. That there's no one who's righteous. That even our, our best deeds just don't even add up. They're like filthy rags before, before, before God in comparison with his glory. And so if you think that you're doing good enough to earn God's favor, to earn his love, to earn his respect. You, you're not, you can't. That's why you have to understand that it was given as a free gift of Jesus. And so he says, if you're looking to the world, you're not going to find your wisdom there. Where do we find the wisdom? Godly wisdom isn't discovered, it's revealed by the Holy Spirit. Jumping back over to 1 Corinthians 2 and in verse 10, he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person. What are you thinking about right now? I don't know, but you know, right? <laughs> is it the Eagles game? Is it, is it lunch? Is it the argument you got in on the way over here to church this morning? Is it, is it this passage? You know, what, whatever's in your mind, I don't know, but, but you know what it is, and that's the point that he's making here. Only you know that. And so he goes on to say, only the, person, the spirit of the person knows what they're thinking, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What is God thinking right now? We don't know, but the Spirit knows. And his is his point. We have the Spirit within us, and so the Spirit is within us, and so only those with the Spirit can have the, the heart and the mind of God revealed in them. It's not an earthly wisdom. It's, it's a heavenly wisdom that can be revealed. Verse 12, now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God, 
that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. What are the things freely given to us by God? It's everything we receive in the gospel, right? That is the gospel. It's the message of what has been freely given to us. It costs us nothing. It costs God immensely. It cost him his very son. But we're given salvation and we're given forgiveness of sins and we're given redemption and we're adopted into his family and we're given these incredible spiritual gifts in the heavenly places that we don't even understand or comprehend, right? And, 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 but, but there's no way we'll understand any of that without the Spirit of God speaking to us about what we've been freely given. The Spirit of the world doesn't understand the gospel. Verse 13, and we impart these, this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So here's what I want you to understand. Um, if there's somebody that, that you've been praying for, that you've been, been, been seeking uh, to see them come to really know God, to understand the gospel, uh, the, the solution is not going to be that you get the words just right, that you get the logic just right, that you point out things in just the right order and just in the most compelling way. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. No matter how eloquent you are, no matter how logical you are, the thing that's going to change their heart is the Holy Spirit. And so instead of planning and plotting exactly how we're going to do it, a better thing is just to pray, uh, Holy Spirit, reveal yourself <laughs> to this person. They can't understand the, the beautiful message of the gospel unless you have revealed it to them. That's the only way. So I would ask you this morning, who is it that, that you need to pray for? Maybe it's yourself. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, I think I might be about to become a Christian. That's awesome. And, and let me tell you, you wouldn't have that thought unless God's Spirit was working within you, right? The, the, the earthly wisdom would never say, like, I should start worshiping Jesus. It doesn't happen, right? And so if you're at that spot where you're like, man, I've been feeling this tug on my heart and I don't understand it, but, but I, feel like I, I feel like Jesus is really the Son of God and I need to understand what it is to follow him. If that's where you're at, man, that's awesome. That today is the day to just put your faith in Jesus. And you do that by simply praying a prayer and saying, Jesus, I believe you're God's Son. I believe you've forgiven me. I want to know what it is to follow you. Give me the wisdom that, that you promised in this passage. And if you pray that prayer, the Bible says in that moment that you've received salvation. And, and, and he'll begin to do things. And he'll begin to change things. And, and, and you'll begin to understand and you'll desire obedience. And there'll be things that will turn around in your life. But, but you don't have to wait until everything gets cleaned up in your life because it's never going to be cleaned all the way up. But the way that you, that you do it is you just submit. You say, Jesus... I need you to clean me up because I can't clean myself up. And if you do that, it says the angels in heaven celebrate because you have entered into, you have received salvation. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so that's the message for you today. Maybe, maybe you, you say, no, no, I know Jesus, but man, I have a loved one that I need to, I need to pray that, that they would receive the wisdom that comes from heaven, that they would understand the gospel and they would respond to it. Maybe you need to pray for a politician or a leader. Sadly, there's people that I think spend more time thinking about someone they despise, a public figure they've never met, that they might have tweeted at, and that person dominates their life. And maybe instead of obsessing on that, maybe, maybe we just need to offer up prayers and say, God, give that person wisdom. 
whoever that person may be. And I know this church well enough to know that you have many different ideas in your mind about who that person might be, right? Jesus prayed for us when we were his enemies, and so we should be willing to pray for those that are our enemies. When someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you, when someone uh, deceives you to pray, um, man, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself. There was that thing from the court case this week, right, where the the brother of the, the murdered young man. If you didn't see that, you got to look it up, right? But um, man, he gives an incredible speech and he says, hey, I'm not going to say eloquent things. I don't have a lot of things. Here's what I need to say to you. You, you need to receive forgiveness from Jesus. That's, that's what my brother would want. That's what I want. I forgive you. I love you. I want you to know Jesus. Man, that's a powerful example. And it should prick us in our heart, right? Because we're holding grudges against people that have done far less than kill a family member, and yet we hold on to it. And God wants us to let go of it today.